Our first presenter today is going to be Mr. Fred Kuivik. Pronounce that correctly, Mr. Kuivik. Um, and he's going to be presenting on mining in Yellowstone National Park, the Jardine Mining District. By way of introduction, um, Fred is, uh, he works as an expert industrial historian in environmental litig litigation, usually in Superfund cases. His specialty is in the history of the extractive industries, especially mining and petroleum. From 1977 to 1990, he lived in Butte, where he developed his interest in mining history. In the 1980s, he prepared a determination of eligibility to the Regist National Register of Historic Places for the Historic Mining Resources in Jardini. He has an MS in Historic <coughs> Preservation from Columbia University and a PhD in History and Sociology of Science from the University of Pennsylvania. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Fred. Thanks, Aaron. It's always wonderful to be back out in Montana. My wife and I live in St. Paul now, um, but we're out here for a couple of weeks visiting friends in the midst of uh, this history conference. So um, before I get to the prepared remarks, most of you know this geography, but for those of you who don't know the area around uh, Gardner and Yellowstone National Park, um, this is the, the north boundary of the park. Here's the Yellowstone River flowing out of the park and down towards uh, Livingston. Uh, so most of my talk is about Jardine, mining at Jardine, and that's uh, up Bear Creek, um, and Bear Creek flows down into the Yellowstone River. Just a couple of other things geographically for later in my talk. I'll make mention of Corwin Springs. That's down in this direction, um, off the map, along the Yellowstone River. And then Cook City and the New World Mining District are the, to the east, um, at the northeast corner of Yellowstone National Park. So, with that, we gather here in Red Lodge this year to commemorate the sesquicentennial of Yellowstone National Park. Congress passed the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act in early 1872, and President Ulysses S. Grant signed it into law on March 1st of that year, creating the first national park in the United States, and according to many authorities, the first national park in the world. Two months later, Congress passed the General Mining Act of 1872, a law that is still on the books. That law did not send the nation in a new direction as the Yellowstone Act did. Rather, it further codified a set of practices regarding mineral lands that had been the norm since the California Gold Rush of 1849. Standard practice in European nations at the time had been that the central government owned all the mineral resources, and the government would lease mineral lands to private parties who then paid royalties to the government based on returns earned from mineral production. During the first half of the 19th century, the U.S. government experimented with various means, including leasing, of disposing of the rights to mine on the vast tracts of the North American continent it had acquired through treaties with Great Britain, the Louisiana Purchase, war with Mexico, and other means. The U.S. government tried leasing mineral lands in, in exchange for royalties, and it tried selling mineral lands. 
but the federal government was much too small and the territory too large for the government to implement those practices in an orderly manner. That reality became all too clear when the United States acquired the northern, northern half of Mexico in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, signed in February 1848 to end the war against Mexico. A month earlier, James Marshall had discovered gold at Sutter's Mill in California, initiating one of the largest mineral rushes in history. A year later, thousands of prospectors and would-be miners flocked to a territory that had suddenly become the public domain of the United States, the government of which was in no position to try to regulate the gold rush or regulate the prospecting, exploring, and mining on public lands. To avert chaos, miners, who legally speaking were squatters on federal lands, developed a series of local codes by which they could stake mining claims, record those claims at local mining district, mining district offices, and have the claims respected by other prospective prospectors and miners. Those practices obtained until Congress essentially made the local codes into federal law by passing the Mining Act of 1866. The Mining Act of 1872 amended the 1866 law by adding some specifications to the ways that mining claims would be located, described, recorded, and eventually patented. But the 1872 Act continued to recognize the local rules and customs adopted by mining districts as they opened and developed so long as those rules and customs did not conflict with U.S. law. Yellowstone National Park was nearly 3,500 square miles of land withdrawn from the public domain that was supposed to be protected from resource development like logging, hunting, and mining. But the park was surrounded by a vast territory of the northern Rockies that was still public domain, open to logging, homesteading, or mining. Focusing just on mining, prospectors were free under the 1866 and 1872 acts to enter that public domain without permission from the federal government to look for minerals. If they found what appeared to be promising signs of mineral deposits, they could stake mining claims and document them at a local recorder's office. They could move onto their claims. They could build cabins to live in. They could start digging to see how far the signs of promising minerals extended beneath the Earth's surface. And if they found exploitable mineral deposits, they could start mining and putting their mineral output on the market, all without having to notify the federal government of what they were doing. And they did not have to pay royalties to the government. Often, the only way the government would learn that a miner had located, explored, and started mining a claim was when the miner applied to the general land office for a patent to the claim, by which, by which title to the land would transfer from the government to the claimant, so long as the claimant could document that he had complied with the Mining Act of 1872, meaning that there were no conflicting claims, that he had conducted at least $100 worth of assessment work each year, meaning exploring, building improvements, etc., and that he could prove he had indeed found exploitable minerals. 
If the claimant met those requirements, he would receive title to the land from the federal government for a modest application fee. Prior to receiving a patent to the land, however, the claimant enjoyed all the rights to exploit, exploit the mining claim as if it were his own property, so long as he did not violate local, state, or federal laws. And since there were virtually no laws regulating the environmental impacts of mining in the 19th century, miners were essentially free to conduct their mining activities as they pleased, even on unpatented mining claims. The search for mineral wealth drew adventurers to the area that would become Yellowstone National Park a decade after its creation. In the 1860s, excuse me, before its creation, uh, in the 1860s, after the discoveries of gold at Bannock, Virginia City, and elsewhere in Montana Territory, prospectors moved into the Yellowstone country, finding placer gold in Emigrant Gulch and near Gardner. In 1864, a group found placer gold in Bear Creek, where Jardine would come to be, and the area was designated the Bear Gulch Mining District. Uncle Joe Brown was the most prominent of the earlier early discoverers, and in this photo you can see Brown on the right posed with uh, Horn Miller, and many of you heard uh, Horn Miller uh, described earlier this morning. He and associates worked the placer deposits for several years and then in 1870 discovered veins of gold-bearing quartz on Mineral Hill. They milled their gold ore in a crude arastra. Brown and others continued trying to develop the gold deposits in Bear Creek for three decades, but significant development did not occur until the end of the 1890s when Harry Bush and others arrived bought mining claims and a five-stamp mill at the fledgling camp of Bear Gulch and incorporated the Bear Gulch Mining Company in 1898 to attract, to attract investors and conduct operations. Bush's company increased the mill from five to 20 stamps and added other equipment to better recover gold from the crushed and ground ore. They also built a guest house and a company office both of which buildings survived into the 1980s. Among the investors was a group from New Brunswick, Canada, who put their shares of stock in the charge of A.C. Jardine of St. John's, after whom the camp was renamed in 1899. That same year, Discord led Bush to leave the Bear Gulch Company and form the Revenue Mining Company, named for one of the mining claims he owned in the district. Bush secured financing to build a new mill, the Revenue Mill, while Jardine continued in charge of the Bear Gulch Company and its mill. Beginning in about 1900, Bush's creditors started demanding payment, initiating a flurry of mining company incorporations on his part and by others trying to gain control of the mining properties around Jardine. The winner of those various contests eventually was the Kimberly Montana Gold Mining Company, which succeeded in 1902, a year after Harry Bush left town, in consolidating the several companies operating in the Jardine District, including the Bear Gulch Mining Company, Revenue Mining Company, and several others. Kimberly Montana thrived for a few years, helped in part 
by the promise of adding tungsten to the metals mined at Jardine. But the company failed in 1909, and its properties were sold at sheriff's sale in 1913. A year later, the Jardine Gold Mining Company, incorporated in Arizona, located its offices in Butte and acquired the Jardine properties. Harry Bacorn and his brother, both from Butte, whoops, I jumped ahead there, both from Butte, um, took charge of the company and began developing new ore bodies on Mineral Hill. They put the mines and revenue mill back into operation, employing nearly 200 men into the 1930s. Another metal, arsenic, helped to make the Jardine Mining Company profitable. The gold ores beneath Mineral Hill are also rich in arsenopyrite, from which arsenic could be recovered. In the era around the First World War, the market for arsenic grew rapidly as cotton farmers recognized its value as an insecticide against the boll weevil. Arsenic had already played a dramatic role in Montana history in the Deer Lodge Valley. Arsenic in the smoke of the new Washoe smelter, which opened at Anaconda in 1902, settled as a fine dust on the vegetation of nearby grazing lands where cattle, sheep, and horses ingested the arsenic and began dying in alarming numbers. Farmers and ranchers filed suit in federal court against the Anaconda Copper Mining Company in the famous case brought by Fred Bliss. In an effort to address the problem, the ACM built a new 300-foot stack at the smelter in 1903, but it didn't solve the problem. Moreover, sulfur in the smelter smoke started killing timber on thousands of acres of national forest land let's see, uh, thousands of acres of national forest land south and west of Anaconda, leading the United States to file suit against the ACM in 1910. In 1911, an agreement put the suit on hold while the ACM continued to research technical fixes for the problem, leading eventually to the construction of the 585-foot <coughs> stack that still stands at, atop Smelter Hill today as a state monument. Recovering arsenic from the smelter smoke added to the ACM's profits. That same strategy helped the Jardine Mining Company be profitable for about two decades. To treat the ore, Baycorn and the Jardine Company continued to use the revenue mill to crush and treat ore to recover the gold. In 1923, the company built a new arsenic mill to roast ore after the gold was recovered. Roasting broke apart the arsenopyrite molecules comprised of iron, sulfur, and arsenic. The arsenic then combined with oxygen to form arsenic trioxide, a substance that sublimates, which means that it passes from the gaseous phase to the solid phase without going through the liquid phase, as most substances do. The roasting furnace at the arsenic plant put gaseous arsenic trioxide into the smoke, which then would pass through a device called a kitchen. Baffles in the kitchen put the smoke through a circuitous path, allowing the smoke to cool and causing the arsenic trioxide to sublimate and drop out of the smoke stream as a fine powder. The shape of the floor would help convey the powder to hatches 
through which it was loaded into wagons. Both the revenue and arsenic mills were still standing when I helped record the Jardine site in 1981, and the process of recovering arsenic was still evident. The milling of ore products produces, of ore produces a product, usually a concentrate, but most of the material in the ore is discarded as a waste, called tailings. Finely crushed material composed mostly of the host rock, but also, because milling is not 100% effective, some of the desired minerals as well. The operators of the Jardine mills prior to the 1980s made no effort to impound or otherwise store the tailings, so most of the tailings washed down Bear Creek. The Jardine Mining Company ceased producing arsenic in 1936, but it had started producing tungsten again in 1930. With the outbreak of the Second World War, the company increased the capacity of the revenue mill to 300 tons per day to meet growing demand for tungsten, and in 1944 the company reopened the arsenic mill to meet demand for that substance. After the government canceled purchasing contracts at the end of the war, Jardine Mining was unable to meet its loan obligations. The cyanide plant for recovering gold burned in 1948, after which the company ceased operating. After a series of court claims and counterclaims between Jardine Mining and the federal government, the latter seized the property in 18, 1964 and sold it at auction to a man who hoped to open a ski resort. Failing in that, he sold the property to the Anaconda Company in the mid-1970s. A year later, Anaconda sold the property to Homestake Mining Company, which put the Mineral Hill property back into production in 1989. TVX Gold, a Canadian mining company, acquired a 50% share in the operation in 1993, and the property closed again in 1996, putting 130 employees out of work. The closure was declared permanent in 2001, and final reclamation of the area around Jardine commenced. Tailings produced during the 1989-1996 period was stored in dry form at a lined site about a half mile south of the old revenue and arsenic mills. Reclamation included hauling some residual old tailings from the earlier mills to the tailings storage site. The site storage area, the storage area was then covered with soil and planted with vegetation, the intention being to allow evapotranspiration from the vegetation to prevent precipitation from moving through the topsoil to the stored tailings below. In 2017, Kinross Gold, the Canadian parent of TVX Gold, donated its 3 billion gallon water right in Bear Creek to Trout Unlimited to help maintain flow in the Yellowstone River, and it donated a permanent conservation easement on 549 acres of land to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to serve as a land corridor for elk migrating from Yellowstone National Park. Along with those remedial actions, TVX continues trying to develop other mining rights it has in the Jardine area, such as its proposed Crevice Mountain project, which is southeast of Jardine and much closer to the park boundary. 
Despite the remediation at Jardine, seepage from the tailing still contributes nearly 1,000 kilograms per year of arsenic to the water flowing down the Yellowstone River. But Jardine's proximity to Yellowstone National Park puts that figure in an interesting perspective. The Montana Department of Environmental Quality measures arsenic concentrations in Yellowstone in the Yellowstone River at Corwin Springs, finding that the river at that point carries nearly 50,000 uh, kilograms per year of arsenic, but almost all of it is from what the DEQ calls non-anthropogenic sources, meaning sources for, for which humans are not responsible. The non-anthropogenic sources originating at Jardine accounts for uh, about 2% of the annual arsenic flowing in the Yellowstone River past Corwin Springs. Remediation at Jardine protected the Bear Creek portion of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is a much larger area around Yellowstone National Park that conservation advocates have fought for decades to protect as a means of protecting the ecosystems of the park itself. But there are other nearby areas in Montana that have long been recognized for their mineral potential, development of which could pose additional risks to the greater Yellowstone. One of those areas is in Emigrant Gulch, where another Canadian mining company has acquired the rights to explore about 2,000 acres of national forest land, an activity that is still allowed under the Mining Act of 1872 and by the U.S. Forest Service's 1897 Organic Act. In 2018, the U.S. Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management withdrew 30,000 acres of land north of Yellowstone Park from, min from mineral entry, but existing mining claims, if valid, could still be explored. The other scene of controversy over the impacts of mining on Yellowstone Park has occurred in Montana near Cook City and the northeast corner of the park in an area called the New World Mining District. It has been known to be rich in minerals since before the park was established, but it has seen only limited mineral development. In the latter part of the 20th century, about the time Mineral Hill at Jardine was being put back into production, mining interests sought to explore and develop the New World District. The Greater Yellowstone Coalition, which advocates on behalf of the larger ecosystem to protect the treasures within the park, orchestrated a deal by which to purchase the rights to mine in the New World Mining District from Naranda, another large company, mining company. In August 1996, President Bill Clinton traveled to Yellowstone and joined by representatives from the National Park Service, Greater Yellowstone Coalition, Noranda, and elected officials from Montana and Wyoming announced the deal that stopped the pr prospect of mining in the New World District. There had been some mining and milling in the New World District over the decades. One such area was along Soda Butte Creek, a tributary of the Lamar River, which is in turn a tributary of the Yellowstone River. The McLaren Gold Mining Company produced gold, silver, lead, zinc, and copper there from 1934 to 1953, shipping concentrates to the Anaconda smelter. The McLaren Mill, which produced the concentrates, had left a sizable tailings deposit. Leaching 
of the metals from the tailings, stained soda butte creek with iron and contributed dissolved metals to the stream's flow into the Lamar River. To remedy the situation, the Montana DEQ spent nearly $25 million in 2013 to move the tailings to a nearby safe repository and to treat contaminated water and reconstruct about uh, 1,800 lineal feet of Soda Butte Creek where the tailings had previously been located and re uh, reconstruct the, uh, the stream to a condition uh, from before mining and milling had commenced. And since I uh, prepared uh, these remarks, I've also read an article that DEQ has studied that site and during the recent floods in the uh, uh, areas on both east and west of the north boundary of Yellowstone Park, including here at Red Lodge. That uh, re uh, reclaimed area survived wonderfully, evidently, and had they not uh, completed that work in 2013, uh, that flooding would have uh, eroded all of those tailings down into the Lamar Valley. Uh, and I should say DEQ obtained funding for the project through grants from another state agency and from the U.S. Department of the Interior. Recent efforts to protect Yellowstone National Park from the impacts of mining have been successful, but there will undoubtedly be pressure from mining interests in the future. Minerals are non-renewable resources, and as the world population continues to grow, there will continue to be demand for metals. Moreover, as humans take halting steps to address the climate crisis, there will probably be greater reliance on electrification from renewable sources to energize human activities. And electrification will require increasing, de will require increasing demand for new mining projects of, uh, of the, the needed metals. All of these human transitions outside the boundaries of the park, compounded by the changing climate itself, will continue to pose threats to the ecological and geothermal resources within the park. Thank you very much.